Welcome to episode 15 of Leading in a Climate-Changed World from Olivia Mythodrama. In this episode, we speak to Mac McCartney, international writer and speaker seeking to inspire courageous action for a just, peaceful and sustainable world. Mac talks about his experience within the corporate world and how he brings his own brand of truth to the boardroom. Robin and Mac discuss what type of leadership is needed to break borders into a new way of thinking, even if this transition looks scary. They look at what leaders must do to define themselves and their purpose, and how to be brave enough to act into their understanding of what's right and what's wrong. Mac discusses what's missing from education and how societal norms are serving to dull the life-changing experiences that people often need to switch their story from doing bits on the edge to being immersed in improving their way of working and living. Mac highlights the three questions that people must ask themselves before embarking on a quest for authentic leadership. We're still looking to grow our podcast, so any interaction that you can provide, if you rate it or comment on whichever app you're listening, uh, then that interaction will really help us. Um, And don't forget, podcasts are accompanied by video hosted on the Olivier Mythodrama YouTube channel, uh, youtube.com forward slash Olivier Mythodrama. So if there's anything or anyone you'd like to see on the podcast or you just want to say hi, please email hello at leadinginaclimatechangedworld.com. Enjoy the podcast. Over to Robin and Mac. So welcome everybody to our podcast, Leading in a Climate Changed World. Today it is an enormous pleasure to talk with my friend Mac McCartney. And Mac is one of those people whose names comes up everywhere. Everywhere you talk about leadership and you talk about environmental questions and you talk about sustainability, at some point somebody will say, have you met Mac? And the answer is yes. You know, I met Mac many years ago, actually, maybe more like 15, 20 years ago. And he's an international speaker. He's a writer, a change maker, an activist. Mac contributes to diverse organizations and communities, including schools, universities, business corporations, social enterprises, grassroots initiatives, including such as Extinction Rebellion. He's founded and led a portfolio of enterprises, both in the commercial and not-for-profit sectors, including Embercoom, a UK charity that seeks to explore and promote the profound regeneration of land, society, and people. Prior to setting up Embercoom, Mac led leadership development businesses in the UK, Poland, and Russia. Over the last few years, his work with organizations has included the delivery of presentations and workshops, supporting Unilever's Sustainable Living Plan, and speaking engagements with Vodafone, HSBC, and the Taranaki CEO Forum, amongst many others. In 2013, he was presented with the Enlightened Society Award, And in 2015, Plymouth University awarded him an honorary doctorate in education for his service to the community. Mac has delivered four compelling TEDx talks. He's also the author of two books, Finding Earth, Finding Soul, The Invisible Path to Authentic Leadership, and The Children's Fire, Heart Song of a People. So a huge welcome to you, Mac. It's great that you have some time to spend with us today. Not at all. Thank you, Robin. And I know that in addition to this you know, very impressive biography, that you know, over a period of 20 years or so, you were mentored by a group of indigenous elders. And ever since, in a way, you've attempted to bring those worlds together, the ancient wisdom and contemporary society. And I wonder if you could speak a bit about that part of your story 
and that part of your biography, because that's particularly fascinating, I think. And also what that tells us about leadership, what that tells us about how we respond to the climate emergency. Sure. Um, I mean, that was the most uh, profound uh, sort of turning point, really, in both my thinking and my, um, my spiritual journey and, uh, and then in my professional journey, just really everything to do with my life. And, um, and it was uh, a coming home in many ways uh, to, to me, who at that time was um, urgently looking for some way of relating to the age that I'd been born into. Uh, having felt for quite a long time that you know some kind of mistake because I didn't quite fit in this time. So what it really did, my association with them and everything that unfolded from that point, was to confirm my childhood uh, love affair with nature and with everything to do with nature. Uh, and uh, even ultimately human beings, which I was rather slower to, uh, to, to love and care for, <laughs> including myself. But that is also fundamental, the, the notion that we are part of nature. We speak about it as if it's separate, it's silly uh, and hubristic, and it doesn't make any sense. So that whole notion of, um, alongside that then comes a sense of responsibility. Uh, that we have uh, to use our cleverness and resourcefulness uh, well. And, uh, and then uh, along with that came the whole notion of our children. And, and really this question that's encompassed in, in the, uh, that goes, what is the purpose of a human life? Or what is the purpose? What is our collective species purpose? And I found no answers to those kind of questions. Um, in the society to which I've been born that I could um, digest and live with. But I did find uh, the answers to those questions with indigenous people. Where, uh, where did you study and, and live and work with the indigenous people in what place? Well, they initially began with a group that was from all kinds of different tribes that had gathered around um, a particular um, small group of medicine people, uh, teachers, spiritual philosophy, who are Native Americans. And, um, and they had land in the coastal mountains of Northern California, which wasn't a reservation land, it was their own land. And they earned their living through their art and writing. And then that money funded all the work training various people like me who came along. But then they, they began coming over to the UK and you know, I was toing and froing um, over many years until finally they came to Embercombe, which uh, where they oversaw the creation of the stone circle that's at Embercombe. And uh, in 2004, basically, then they ceased to visit. Uh, because they were confronting uh, a, a situation within their own internal group that caused it to fragment and depart. For me, Robin, though, that, that was, I mean, that was a long beginning, but that was a sort of a beginning and an incubation. Um, and um, since then, I mean, I was visiting the Tuhoi Maori in um, New Zealand this March and had a wonderful uh, experience with them. 
and then uh, meeting some of the Kogi Mamos when I was in Australia, and more latterly with um, uh, Objibwe and uh, Mohawk and Lakota teachers here. And I will continue that. But in some ways, I, I wouldn't want to say it's a distraction, but the indigenous piece, the, the greatest gift of the indigenous learning that I received was the invitation to look towards my own land, my own people, my own ancestry, uh, and not forever, as it were, to Tibet, uh, to South America, to everywhere else, and to bring it into this contemporary life. Reverence for our earth, um, sense of privilege, having a human life, um, the willingness to step over borders that I found rather terrifying, um, even though I never felt ready or resourced, um, and do whatever I could to speak on behalf of this beautiful earth and the millions of beautiful people and other beings that exist on it and hopefully will in the future. And how did you find your way into that? Was that an accident? Was it someone suggested? Was it a product of longing? Like, how did you first encounter the people it, in California? In, in there, I was searching for them, yes. I, I knew I was on a spiritual journey, although I have to say somebody looking from the outside might, might not look quite like that. <clears throat> but I knew, I couldn't, I didn't have my own language to express what I felt in my heart. And every time I read those, some of the, the Native American great oratory and, and all of the histories, I just felt these people had a gift for me. So I went looking for them. And it, it's really quite a long story as to how eventually I managed to make contact, but uh, it was with a lot of persistence and effort over a period of years, and then confronted with the fact that they were not necessarily just gonna take me on board because I was interested that I would have to be tested and I would have to prove resilient and that I could be chucked out at any time if I didn't, if I didn't appear to be worth the investment of their effort. Right. I mean, we could spend a lot of time just talking about that whole piece of your life, but I want to also bring it into this leadership question. So clearly it's enriched your life a lot and, yeah. and you've spoken about some of the qualities and characteristics of that journey, reverence for life and mm -hmm. responsibility and feeling ourselves as part of nature and not separate from it. Do you translate that experience and that embodiment of the experience which you carry into your leadership trainings? And if so, how do you do that? How do, how do you bridge the divide, but what seems to be a divide anyway, between that kind of experience and you know, the corporate Unilever strategic plan? Um, <laughs> I think uh, it would be right to say, Robin, that I reached a point where I couldn't do anything else. And in many ways that was rather inconvenient because I knew that if I started speaking, writing and teaching as I really felt, I would probably lose clients, uh, given that this was, um, I mean, it, it stretches back 30 years, you know, more. So, um, but it was a realization that I, I almost had no choice about the matter because um, 
it caused such turmoil and disruption within me if I tried to shove it to the side and just um, meet the client's needs in, in the way that they defined them and then service them. Uh, I did do that for a while um, and, and then at a certain point it began breaking down. So um, I think it would be uh, correct to say now that I, I, I don't compromise, but it's not a, um, it's not a brittle thing, if you see what I mean. It, it's, um, I find it really very easy, and, and especially now, because um, I will refer to uh, Mother, Mother Earth in speaking to those Vodafone people, Unilever, Danone. I will talk about the words, uh, about spirituality, about love, about, um, about all these things. I don't feel any embarrassment. I feel a kind of gentle relief and, um, and uh, warmth because it's my experience that's spoken on the basis of a trusting kind of, um, um, not, I'm not trying to educate them if you like, I'm sharing something of my experience and inviting them to be interested and to consider. Um, so when this happens, you know, um, they seem to respond very, very easily. And so I keep getting invited back, which has been more of a surprise to me than uh, to probably anybody. That's wonderful. So your experience is that if you are authentic and you share what is real for you, there's a response that meets you. You haven't received a lot of kind of pushback. We don't want all that woo-woo, woolly stuff in our boardrooms. and. Yeah, no, uh, absolutely. That is exactly the case. So if I give some examples right now, uh, last week, um, I spoke in Oslo at an entrepreneurs conference. I spoke as we are speaking now and um, it was overwhelmingly positive, almost like a, a wave of relief with people saying, yes, this is, and uh, basically the thesis was, everybody kept saying we want more entrepreneurs and i said well uh, do we you know if, if we're going to get more of what we've already had i'm not sure if that's necessarily you know going to meet so i said no that uh, what kind of entrepreneurs and then we explored that uh speaking in amsterdam at the ade green conference which is a conference for the music industry overwhelming desire on a, a large um conference for the music industry to begin to play its part in in catalyzing the sort of changes that we need and the Danone advisory board I mean when they first contacted me I wrote back and said you know I'm absolutely delighted to receive this invitation but I do feel it's important just to ask you do you know who I am and um, and you haven't just heard have you checked me out as it were and I got a really delightful email back saying, yes, we have absolutely checked you out. And it's because uh, you speak as you speak and you share as you share that we are inviting you onto this board. And um, so, of course, I don't get invited to those people <laughs> who would find uh, my what I offer a little too rich, as it were. So, um, but that's fine, you know. 
Yeah, and you also have some credibility, I guess, because you used to run more, is it fair to say, more mainstream consulting companies in UK, Poland, Russia, like other places. So in a way, yes. you cut your teeth in a, in a more mainstream way. So you built some track record and, and credibility through that? Yes, that's true. I mean, we, we conducted um, two, uh, three uh, Unilever um, culture change projects, each one which was something like three to four years, uh, uh, Poland, Italy and Turkey. And, um, and so, yes, I've got a lot of stories and also uh, through associateship with another leadership organization, which took me into some amazing situations, meeting with some of Mandela's um, um, companions on Robin Island and, and um, meeting, uh, I don't know, all kinds of extraordinary people who've done extraordinary things, which, which funds me with a lot of stories which um, sort of um, locates me amongst some rather lofty fraternity that I don't, in one sense, you know, I mean, it's all nonsense, isn't it, really? I, I, I just, I've hung out with them and I've been there and I've seen them and I've got stories to tell. Um, and I suppose most of us are rather susceptible. Uh, if we hear that someone's hung out with some of those kind of people, we imagine that they are, somehow worth listening to which i'm not quite sure is really true but you know there you go right but it feels like there's a number of ingredients at play as i as i experience you also as i know you from before so one is yeah you have stories to tell and an experience mm -hmm. and a track record one is that you speak from your heart with a lot of authenticity and and you know i would also say humility and what you bring <clears throat> but also it sounds as if your response indicates that you also meet a kind of hunger. Mm. Do you say that in the people that you're talking to? And I wonder if we could speak a bit about that, because you also said, like now in particular, people are really open to this. So what's been changing and, and what is that hunger? And how can we also acknowledge that in developing the leadership that's needed now? Yes. I mean, uh, what a slow uh, cooking process this has been. I mean, it's 50 years. 55 years since I sat around the dining table in my family first discussing these issues. Um, it has, uh, and half the carbon in the atmosphere was put there in the last three decades or two decades, I can't remember which. So, you know, we've just had our ears plugged and closed our eyes for some decades, so at least the larger part of society. But I think now the evidence the, the scientific evidence is so overwhelming and the, the physical um, sort of impact is being seen to such a degree that there is almost like um, every day uh, people are taking it more seriously. And I don't, I don't think there is no way that this is going to be, as it were, uh, um, a fad that will then fade. I, I can only imagine it will just increase I think many people have been sitting and sit with a kind of um, slow waking up process happening within them of being uncomfortable uh, when they consider maybe their lifestyles or what their work is actually contributing to. Um, when, they, when they sit with their children and hear a commentary from their children that, that is possibly critical or questioning. Um, I mean, I just think that the whole thing uh, is approaching 
uh, or, or is in some kind of real confrontation uh, our, our actions and the beliefs and mindset that's behind them and the impact on society on the environment and on our um, overall well-being in so many different ways that people are becoming much 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 more open uh, to to exploring these things right and is that because they have to because their financial proposition is threatened otherwise or is it because there's an awakening in the heart or are both these things happening at the same time? Is there a kind of evolutionary process that's also waking up humanity in a way? Like how much do you think it's driven by, well, we just have to do this because we don't have a business model anymore? Um, I'm sure it's all of those things, you know, I mean, in, uh, but not necessarily all in the same place. So there will be people who are, there will be boardrooms where there's a discussion about we really need to change because we're not going to be in business if we don't. And that's one kind of conversation and, and, and if that's what it takes, then that's fine. You know, that, that's good enough as long as there's some change and I don't mind too much if it's, you know, where it springs from. But there are undoubtedly multiple others where um, it's a really genuine um, uh, sort of heart um, driven response to what people are seeing and and i would say uh Danone, north america who i work with uh you know i mean i was shocked when i went into that meeting and went through the first um you know that first session because if if you just videoed it with the sound off and changed the slides and told and, and then and let people hear the conversation and said this is some ngo working for the betterment of the world, as it were, you know, you would have just said, yes, of course it is. And this is a very senior, this is the chief exec and the, 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 the board, all passionately, and I have to say, you know, troubled as well about how do we turn this enormous uh, ship round so that it, we might one day be able to say that this is a force for good in the world. And of course, it was never set out to be a force for anything else. You know, it was just meant to be a business. Um, but as we all know, um, you know, there are all manner of um, uh, impacts which are made by business as usual, which is um, um, uh, extremely harmful. So they, they set themselves the goal, become a B Corp in one year. Uh, and they did it uh, with a massive number of people full time on it and overnight became the biggest B Corp in the world. And Danone itself is something like 40% on its road to become the first multinational B Corp. I mean, this is, this is like big stuff and it would only have worked because it's a group of impassioned people who really believe in, in the, in, and, and desire to be part of something which is part of the solution. And, and I think it's a very genuine, you know, yeah that's a great example and i'm curious then about what is it what what enabled that to happen there that doesn't happen in other places is that about leadership is it about culture yeah well much, and, and, and because we're focusing this particularly around around the leadership that's required how did you experience that or how do you continue to experience that in Danone, for example well in Danone. um the invitation came from a woman called Lorna Davis, who was chief exec uh, at that time. 
and um, she'd been placed there by Emmanuel Faber, CEO of Danone Globally. And my first conversation with Lorna, she said to me, um, uh, if you'd met me a few years ago, I don't know, 10 years ago, something, you would have met one of the most hard-bitten, hardcore, uh, profit growth, you know, executives, and probably would have crossed to the other side of the road if you'd known who I was, you know. Um, but for whatever reason, and I, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't get a, a one particular instance, but she had a sort of a, an epiphany or a series of epiphanies. And in that same phone call said to me, um, I believe that in a relatively short period of time, our children will not be able to comprehend that organizations once existed solely for shareholder value, profit and growth. And so undoubtedly, she as an individual, immensely um, powerful advocate uh, for the kind of thing we're speaking of, put in place by Emmanuel Faber, who I've only met once, but uh, in part of this experience on this uh, advisory board had dinner with. And I was really struck by his humility, his sort of uh, gentle, um, um, co absolute commitment. And again, without a person like that in that position, extremely difficult. Um, so I don't think any of us, though I don't think it's necessarily the way we'd like the world to run, uh, but I don't think we should diminish the, the massive impact that one single inspired person can achieve. Not they don't have to be chief executive of some organization either, as we, we know from other examples. And, but the vulnerability of this uh, was exemplified for me in a bank that I accompanied the executives to, to Kenya. And um, the chief exec of this area was passionately believed that the bank should be serving needs of the world's poorest and doing everything they could to serve them whilst also meeting its commercial objectives. And a number of years later, uh, he lost his job. Now, I'm, I don't know this, but I'm fairly confident in imagine, I think, that the hundred odd chief execs of the different countries that were there, probably all took their new instructions, put their heads down and got back to work. All of these people we would call leaders, you know what I mean? In, but I, I don't, and, and I, I think that is, the, that is the problem. We have people in leadership positions who are not, if, if I don't sound a little harsh, but basically are mercenaries, you know, whatever the price is, you know, yes, okay, I'll do that. And are slaves to something. They are not people who are actually steering that ship. And lastly, it's asking a lot of a person, you know, to put at risk whatever career aspirations and all, their, all the things that their families would like in order to live true to values which probably haven't even been fully explored because they were never part of their MBA when they did it or any other part of their education. Right. And you said what, in a way, what some of leadership isn't, 
I wonder how we how would you define leadership? Well, uh, we've got a number of uh, rather um, uh, what's the word? Uh, not fully satisfactory definitions, but anyway, I would say. Well, let me start this bit. First of all, I think leadership is a choice. I don't think that it's an education received. I don't think that it's um, um, it's uh, these sort of things. I think uh, real, true leadership happens when somebody cares enough about something to do something about it, which means that the most ill-equipped, under-resourced, unsuitable person can become that same person within many spheres of leadership. Many of those people then then set about accumulating the experience and the, whatever they need in order to try and do this because it becomes important enough to them to do so. If I can quickly just add in this, but incidentally, so this is me personally. I, I came to um, uh, Mythodrama 20 odd years ago to attend a speaking program because I knew I had to speak, but I was suffering from panic attacks every time I tried to speak because it was so terrifying to me. So I would never have put myself through that misery. The course was wonderful, by the way, but you know, the misery of standing and trying to speak if I hadn't been driven by a greater force, which was saying, if you love this earth, you have to be prepared to stand and speak for her. Um, so leadership is a choice, a choice that's made not just once, but is made multiple moments by moments forever. And in fact, it probably becomes a harder choice as you get more successful because you have more to lose. Uh, we say a leader is someone who is brave enough to act in alignment with their conscience and their deeper knowing of what's right and what's wrong. Um, we say any leader... Um, all leaders should be following this uh, notion of the twin trail, the inner path of their own self-unfolding, self-healing, self-becoming, uh, but simultaneously the outer path of having powerful effect in the world. And when those two are braided together, like, like the, um, the, the double helix of the DNA or the wand of caduceus, you've got a really powerful, um, potent, kind of um, coming together and another way of putting it is you know hand um, head heart you know uh, guts hands all of it, it aligned and in action simultaneously um, it's asking a lot isn't it but um, but I think the curious thing about it and so we could say a leader really is a person who has actually found out answer the question why they're alive on this earth and what it is they're meant to do. And that, and that in some ways is difficult when you're talking about a, a one day leadership workshop or a two week or a three week, because what we really want people to do is to enlist on a lifelong, continuous um, unfolding journey. Um, and really probably nothing less will suffice. Yeah, I'm totally with you on that. And I love some of those definitions that you've given us around what you see leadership as being. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if you could talk about what in your experience have been the most powerful 
tools for eliciting that kind of response in the people that you've trained? Like you mentioned earlier, epiphanies, for example, is, it, is, is one path to try to engineer epiphanies by bringing people into unusual situations where they might have kind of wake up moments? Or what have you found the most powerful catalysts for eliciting that kind of response to, mm. to life? Yeah. Well, I do think that life uh, seems to me to do, do, her, do its best to bring us to situations where, where some kind of epiphany or multiple epiphanies over time are possible. You know, whether that, you know, challenges and crises and, and, and joys and wonders that we meet in our lives. But, uh, unfortunately, our society and, the, and, and everything that is inhabited in that culture, it tends to undermine and dismiss these things as aberrational moments where we lost the plot for a short while uh, before we get back to the proper business. But having said that, life can also deliver some really shocking things. So uh, I'm sure you and me and those listening to this will know of people who are meeting extreme situations and that these have helped them, uh, no matter how painfully, to, to find uh, greater alignment. Then I think we could say, I mean, for me personally, the ceremonies that I participated in and still participate in are in a sense uh, human created um, ways in which we sort of um, fold ourselves into profound experiences that are designed to try and help us uh, get straight on what's, what's really important and what isn't and be touched by things greater than our own um, plans, as it were. And I must just ask you, could you imagine or have you taken, for example, people from the Danone board into ceremonies of this kind of nature? No, not with Danone. And, um, and uh, in truth, um, at, you see, we were doing, or I say we, when I had my business, we were doing certain things like this. And in fact, the reason that Embercombe exists, this 50-acre valley in Devon that I'm in now, is because one of my clients in uh, 96 or something like that um, gave, well, actually a little earlier, but gave me the brief. They said, we believe that we're going to emerge from this uh, um, trauma that's going through the Lloyds of London insurance business um, like a phoenix. You know, we think we're going to make an absolute huge commercial success arising out of all the awful things that were happening at that time people losing money would you work with us so that by when we one day sell this company and 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 make our fortunes we can put our hand on our hearts and say we did it with integrity and with our values intact so i obviously it was a wonderful piece of work and when that happened and they sold the company to warren buffett and made i don't know how many millions um they came to me and said, we feel lost. Um, we're wealthier than we'd ever dreamed possible. But to be honest, we were reasonably wealthy before. It doesn't feel that different. Uh, we had a plane, we had a helicopter, you know, got yachts, all this sort of thing. Would you work with us on what, what makes 
a fulfilling and 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 a profound life and, and i said well i'm on that journey myself i'm not sure but you know if i can just share that with you but i can we can go on a journey exploring those questions and i took them into a ceremony which we did in snowdonia and it was after that and he turned around and he said do you have a dream and i spoke about Embakum and he said what do you need i said oh i need the place i need a place a valley and that's how Embakum came about so we have used ceremony um and maybe for for some of the people who are listening to this they won't necessarily know what you mean by ceremony so yes. could you just describe the essence of that briefly what is ceremony oh, what is what is a cer i'm just thinking about this um uh i wonder if i can explain it this way first of all it doesn't have to be something involving drums and rattles and feathers and anything else. I, I, if I can use this word, I think that it's coming, it's coming into prayerful presence with life in some form that's been either created or is unfolding. So when we run the journey program here at Embercoom, before anybody arrives, we go down to a special place on our land, we light a little fire, and as far as we are concerned, we are opening the ceremony that is called by the people coming, a course. You know? And we are intention throughout that whole experience is nothing to do with, with, with hope, with, with trying to drum up further business or, or trying to hook them on to follow up courses or anything of this kind. It's that they have as profound an experience as they can uh, held in our care during that time. And when they disappear and they go away and no one's watching, we go back down to the ashes of that fire that's now a week old. We each take a handful of it, we turn outwards and we throw the ashes to the wind, signifying, you know, now, now it goes. Ceremony can be as simple as we sit in a circle and we share from our hearts of, of where we're at and what is happening. It seems to me when it's held like that, it may not begin as a ceremony, but at a certain point, you just know something very, very important is happening. You begin to look with new eyes at the ordinary that surrounds you and you realize that ordinary it may have appeared to you before, but if you were looking at the eyes of someone who's imminently about to die, you would see it as it truly is, which is excruciatingly beautiful. So it's about allowing beauty in, it's allow allowing the possibility that you somehow fast track to a deeper, more profound place and choose to put things which are much more important than your own life, as it were, ahead of you. And you come into service, I suppose. Yeah, beautiful. Thank you. I wonder, we're getting towards the end of our time together, but I wonder if you could say where in your experience or even from what you've read or just observed, where would you see the type of leadership that we need right now? Like where are you experiencing that, be it corporate, political, grassroots, NGOs, like what are the kind of examples of, of people or organizations that you feel have, have kind of got it and are doing what's needed now at the depth and breadth and scale that's mm -hmm. required? 
uh, I, I'm not sure, Robin, whether any of us have really got it, as it were, through and through. But I admire immensely those that are just attempting to do this, as it were, and I'd include myself in that. Uh, not admiring myself, but you know what I mean. That, uh, you know, uh, I am work in progress and I'm fumbling my way towards something and doing the best I can. That's about it. I, I mean, I, I have a lot of time for the way that Extinction Rebellion are tr seeking to create roots that will that that ground the thing in a love of nature and in some kind of loosely held sense of the spiritual nature of the work that they're doing now you know it's an enormous and amorphous uh, sort of group which in many respects or certain respects is leaderless and yet um, and so there will be all kinds of aberrations or issues around, you know, so it's not going to work or operate as a concerted whole. But the young people the, in, in Extinction Rebellion, for instance, are calling out for, for um, adult uh, elders, as it were, and people that can provide some kind of guidance. There is a need and an urgent need, I think, for many people to say, how do I stay steady in the midst of endless streams of bad news? And I think the answer to that, uh, at least in part, is, is in, in, in finding some kind of appropriate uh, uh, spiritual holding that allows you to sustain and be resilient in, a, in an extremely and, and endlessly often more uncomfortable situation. Um, I, I think, I suppose I feel um, there is evidence everywhere of big and brave things happening and they're all a bit unsatisfactory. So I would probably include Unilever in this, you know, Paul Pullman went out on a limb, you know, it was fantastic what he did. But I imagine he must at times look back um, on that job he had and say why didn't it catch hold greater you know why didn't we get greater traction there'll be people with views and ideas about that but having met him I don't doubt that he was he is and was sincere and did the best he could within the circumstances he's in um, yeah uh, it yes so it's happening everywhere and it's it's not it's it's disrupted and it's sort of popping up and falling back and moving forward and 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 it's um uh well let me put it this way i think the it it, it is a long way short of where it needs to be so we say the greatest danger that we face at this time is not actually climate change but the passivity of millions of good people who sit on the edges and just can't quite comprehend what it is we're riding into and what is being asked of them. And so they catch glimpses and then they go back to life as normal. They separate their rubbish a little bit and they buy a little bit differently, but it's nowhere near 
what it could be. And if you if you like, I could I just got three questions which we offer leaders, which we think important. Uh, what is it that you most deeply and profoundly love? And that's not a question to be answered, as it were. I mean, you can do some work in a few hours, but it's a question for a lifetime because things do deepen and change. But when you have defined what it is that you deeply and profoundly, and those are the two important words, love, then you have basically defined what is sacred to you. And, and if it is properly sacred to you, then you would never knowingly, consciously betray that thing. So that becomes the flag you stand under. And then you say, what are your deepest and most profound gifts? And you might be struggle with that because you might secretly be saying, so well, I'm not sure if I have any gifts. I'm, I have qualifications, I'm educated, I'm this, I'm that. But it's, I think, a helpful uh, notion from those indigenous people who taught me saying, you know, creation, uh, uh, prior to birth, creation lodges a tiny little piece of her genius inside the gut of every human and then whispers in the unborn child's ear, locate it, grow it, bring it forward, share it generously. Um, when we know our gifts, then, then our work should be orientated around our gifts because then we will shine, we'll be successful, we'll have all those lovely personal feelings of doing something worthwhile and we'll be good at it and that's our peace and then lastly what are your deepest and most profound responsibilities so this hopefully hoists us out of the small-mindedness that so many of us live within where it's as long as our own small circle is doing okay it doesn't really matter too much what's happening outside of that and ultimately that question says you know we are part of a family um, of all things and uh, humans have one seat in that circle and um, and also the children of the Yemen and Syria are as precious as the children here in the UK and so on and so forth it's a, um, and, and that results in basically you feel waves of grief and pain and you feel waves of joy and wonder and i think that's the no that's the normal healthy state for a human being to walk in is with grief and joy as it were in front of us but it's very important not to succumb either one too much one way or the other because if you put the pain aside then you're living in a fantasy land and and you know nothing good will come of it if you put the uh, joy aside, then you just walk into the misery of a darkened room from which ultimately you won't survive. So it's a big, tall order. Yeah, and I think that's a beautiful way to close, actually, with those questions and also this reminder that, that when our heart is open, it opens to everything. Yeah. Right? When our heart is open, it feels the fullness of the pain and the grief and also the beauty and the love and the joy. It opens <laughs> to everything. That's and it. Yeah, thank you so much. And thank you for bringing your beautiful heart into this dialogue, but also into the amazing work that you've been doing, as you say, for over 50 years, looking at these topics, engaging in different levels mm. with these themes. And thank you so much for that. And thank you for this thank time together. And wish you very, very well in all your future endeavors. And I'm sure that our paths will cross many times in the future also. And I look forward to that. Thanks, Robin. I've been very, very pleased to contribute to this series and uh, wish you well. Thank you. Thank mm -hmm. you.